You're listening to Solidarity Radio, a podcast by the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. I'm Evan King. In this week's episode, we sat down with Paige Coombe. Paige is a queer black feminist activist and current senior organizer for membership development at Right to the City Alliance. We spoke about the ways in which global capitalism is shaping our cities, the intersection between empire and urban life, the need for greater internationalism to build grassroots power, the role popular education can have in our movements, and how the Cuban Revolution invites us to expand our imagination. Thank you so much to Paige for taking the time to speak with me. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Paige Coombe. So Paige Coombe, welcome to Solidarity Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to start, Paige, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started doing this work. Okay, um, sure. So my name is Paige. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I currently live in unceded Muscogee Creek territory in uh, southern or northern Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And I work at Right to the City Alliance. I'm the um, director of organizational strategy there. And I've been there for about two and a half years. Right to the City Alliance is a national alliance that um, supports and aligns grassroots groups across the country to fight for um, democracy and dignity and autonomy for communities, especially working class communities of color. Um, And so that work right now, it looks like organizing around housing. Uh, So we have a national campaign that we started in 2013 called Homes for All, um, which is a campaign that's trying to get affordable and dignified and safe housing for everybody because we know that's a possibility. Um, So I started doing housing work in 2011. I actually worked at one of Right to the City's member organizations called Causa Justa, Just Cause in the San Francisco Bay Area. I worked there for four years and I coordinated the tenant rights clinic that we were running in the San Francisco Mission District, which is largely a Central American immigrant, Spanish speaking immigrant neighborhood. And um, that is where I learned about the intersections around housing and like globalization. I got involved with housing because in 2009, um, no, I guess it was 2010, my parents lost their home in foreclosure because this was right after the, I graduated from college in 2009, right during the, um, the financial crisis. And then my parents had just bought a house like four years before. Um, and they lost it as soon as my dad lost his job. Like it was like a few months later and the house was foreclosed on. And it's because they were sold a predatory loan, um, like many other working class people of color. Like my mother is African-American and my dad is German Irish and they come from working class people and they, um, yeah, they bought a house they really couldn't afford because they were sold a loan that, um, was 
not intended for them to actually make good on. Um, and they lost their home and had to move in with my grandparents. Um, and so that caused a lot of stress in our family. Um, my parents ended up getting divorced. Um, all of us have like some level of like anxiety or depression. Um, and I think a lot of it is really related to housing instability. <coughs> Excuse me. So yeah, that's how I found out about the movement around housing justice. I had a friend who I had gone to college with who worked at Causa Justa, and he uh, knew I was looking for a job after I had left a brief unsuccessful stint <laughs> doing labor organizing. And um, I went to work for Causa Justa and really found like my political home because here was a bunch of like queer, black people of color who were um, committed to leftist principles and values around, you know, um, social production for social ownership, for social distribution, of social good. Um, so I was really compelled by the vision that these folks were talking about, you know, a world in which um, capitalism wasn't wreaking havoc on so many people's lives and a world in which we could be safer and freer than any of us had ever been able to be like in our ancestral lives you know so yeah that's how i ended up where i am now a lot of the folks i work with at causa Husa, um continued in this work even after i moved to after i left the bay and moved to new york and then I, I worked on a diff, few different places in New York um, doing like some drug policy work. Um, I went back into labor and actually worked at a popular education uh, school called Seoul School of Unity and Liberation, where I got to train um, young organizers in organizing skills and in um, popular education methodology. Um, and then I, found my way back to the housing world when I was offered a position at Right to the City to come and actually help build out a political education um, infrastructure for our movement, for the Alliance and the members in it. So that's kind of the work I've been doing. And then I recently transitioned to this new role where I'm thinking about all of the different kinds of systems and structures and tools and organizational practices that will allow us to have an organizational culture that better reflects our principles and values and in that it should be sustainable, it should be healthy, and it should be revolutionary. So, and transformative. So that's, yeah, that's the work I'm doing now. You mentioned you work now Right to the City Alliance. Could you briefly explain what is a right to the city? I mean, we've heard of human rights or environmental rights, but what does it mean to have a right to the city? Can you just explain that? Sure. Well, the term right to the city was initially coined by this French philosopher, um, Lefebvre, which I can't remember his first time around, I think it's Louis. Um, and I don't, I'm not like super familiar with his work, but essentially the idea is that the people who live in the city should have the right to make decisions about what happens in that city um, that impact their daily lives. So, you know, what to do with the resources that the city has, how to distribute things, um, how, you know, 
businesses should work, how neighborhoods should be formed, how like access to transportation and healthcare and all of these things um, should be managed. And it's, it's a concept that's like counter to, I think the prevailing like uh, idea of how governance should happen. Um, so yeah, it's basically like grassroots democracy and the people governing themselves and making decisions on um, the good of all, you know, on behalf of everybody. So that's, and, and it being really participatory. Um, so I think that's how we understand a right to the city. And in your introduction, you, you mentioned global capitalism uh, as a major force that you are trying to uh, build popular power against uh, or against the, the, the forces that are shaping not only like our daily lives in our personal relationships, but also the physical environment in which we live. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what are some examples of how the influences of transnational finance capital is like merging with other uh, corporate forces to create these uh, unlivable conditions in our cities, uh, particularly in the United States? Right. So I think, man, there's so much. So maybe I could just start actually with the financial crisis that I mentioned earlier that I was personally impacted by. Um, that was kind of where we saw or like we're really able to understand concretely the role of global financial capital in the real estate industry, right? Because what you had was a bunch of transnational corporations um, basically buying up properties that had been devalued during the 80s and 90s um, with, because of a lack of investment in those communities because they were usually poor working class communities of color. Um, and so property values dropped and then all of a sudden there's like a buying frenzy, right? From like all of these transnational corporations and they just want to make a quick buck, right? So they're um, selling people, so they're flipping these properties and then they're selling people, um, you know, uh, really high mortgages or not even mortgages, they're, 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 um, renting them at really exorbitant rates, right? So you have basically no more small time or, or a decrease, a huge decrease in like small time mom and pop landlords um, because all of a sudden your landlord is like a bank that's working on behalf of some corporation that you've never heard before, or it's an LLC that's like faceless and, you know, is connected to just a whole bunch of other LLCs as like shell companies for these corporations, right? And so they don't have any interest in investing in the community or, you know, ensuring stability or, you know, taking care of the people that live there right? Because they're not connected to that place um, other than making this, making this money. And so what we've seen is a rise in the number of renters um, in this country, in the United States. Um, and we call it at Right to the City, we call it the rise of the renter nation, because it is largely, again, like poor working class communities of color that are impacted and who are renting. And I think part of the philosophy around a right to the city is that access 
to land and like community control of land is imperative for us to be able to live full lives, right? Because when somebody else is in control of where you live, you don't have the ability to put down roots really, or you don't have the control over when those roots get ripped up, right? So, um, yeah, so we've really seen like the financial markets basically betting on people's ability to pay rent or to pay a mortgage. And that just creating this bubble, this real estate um, bubble where um, the prices just keep going up, right? And rents are becoming higher and higher and folks can't afford to pay them unless they like double up with two families. You just see like the conditions deteriorate severely the higher that rents are. Um, I don't think there's, I think I saw something recently that was like, you know, there's no salary. There's no way that one person can pay for an affordable, for a, for a two bedroom apartment on one salary, right, um, in this country. So there's just a huge crisis um, and it's mainly spurred by Wall Street um, investors and stock traders who are, you know, just trying to um, inflate the market and the prices as much as possible. So you have, yeah, so you have very little government regulation over it as well, all right? Because in capitalism, it's about allowing money to flow um, and not really caring about what happens to the people that impacts. Yeah. I mean, you talked there about basically the commodification of the city itself becoming kind of a sink for excess or surplus capital from all across the world. And you see this movement towards uh, all sorts of mega cities, uh, you know, that are starting to look a lot alike. I mean, you can go to almost any major urban center in the world and you'll find the exact same corporations, the exact same style in the architecture. Uh, so it's really you know, anyone who's visited cities uh, can tell that there's clearly uh, like a centralized planning almost of this project against uh, poor people, against the local inhabitants of those lands. And I wanted to shift a little bit here to what is the final stage of capitalism, which is imperialism, and how imperialism also shapes our cities in, in ways that may not be so apparent, even it's in the composition of the population, right? So what we call immigrants often are refugees uh, who are fleeing the conditions that empire produces abroad. So I wonder if we can spend some time just thinking about how U.S. interventionism, uh, but also other colonial powers have shaped the urban landscape uh, all across the world. Yeah, that's a complex question. <laughs> I don't know if I have all of the answers, but I can speak a little bit to like my experience organizing in San Francisco in the Mission District, right? Because like I said, it was a heavily Central American uh, neighborhood. And as has been well documented, we know that the U.S. government has fomented the conditions for um, political unrest and economic devastation in countries in Central America, like El Salvador, like Honduras. And so you have this influx of immigrants coming to uh, the United States because what other option do they have, right? And so 
um, settling in these neighborhoods. And usually they are the neighborhoods that have been um, disinvested in because that's where rents are affordable. Um, and now with gentrification, which I think is like just an extension of colonization, right? Um, you see them being pushed out once again. Um, and so it's just like this cycle of displacement that happens generationally, um, sometimes in the same, in, in one person's life, you know, uh, multiple times. So, um, so yeah, definitely think that the immigrant experience um, in the United States and in like global cities is very um, tied to imperialism and the violence that folks are fleeing that has been caused by the very countries they're fleeing to, right? And then you see this huge like anti-immigrant backlash, even though um, our government is responsible for creating the crisis in the first place. Uh, and so then you see like continued disinvestment and attacks on immigrants um, and, and a, and a, yeah, it's just like a push for them to, to move, to leave um, uh, without any sort of plan about where they could go and, um, and without any sort of like awareness of, of how we are connected. So yeah, so I think in terms of our cities, then you have a lot of things that are like, in ex so, so you're seeing a lot, for example, in the United States, you're seeing a lot of like the voter repression stuff, right? Um, because folks are, because these cities are growing in their population size of people of color and immigrants. And so, you know, the white supremacist character of our government, like is the reaction is to suppress the po potential political power that those folks could have. Um, and so that's how you get, you know, really, messed up laws being passed around uh, voting rights, voting access. And, and then you also just have other things that are inaccessible, like in housing, it's really hard to get like a lease in your native language, for example, or access to legal support when you are being evicted or harassed by your landlord. Um, and just like a general lack of, um, like education around the rights that folks have. So I would see that all the time in San Francisco with our, um, our members who would come to our tenant rights clinic because their landlord was harassing them or threatening to call ICE on them if they didn't leave or you know um, raising the rent to ridiculous amounts. And the thing is San Francisco has actually pretty strong renter protections. And so tenants actually have a lot of rights, probably, between New York and San Francisco, the strongest renter protections you can find in this country. And, um, and, and just folks wouldn't know, right? That, oh no, you have to actually serve me with a legitimate piece of paper to get me out. So yeah, um, I feel like I veered a little bit off of the subject of imperialism, but I feel like that's the type of cycle that you're seeing. That imperialism starts, right? Like displace folks from their homeland. And then once they relocate, displace them from there. And then once they relocate, displace them from there again. And it's all due to these kind of structural factors um, that is embedded within the system of imperialism, right? That prioritizes the global North over the global South and the people of the global South who live in the global North, 
Um, so yeah, so I think that's kind of how I see the the connection. Yeah, I think that's great to to make those associations between you know this migrant experience and this multiplicity of of different kinds of victimization and displacement by dispossession. I mean, I work and live in Colombia. It's a country where this is extremely true uh, in terms of how these cities came to be through the forced displacement of millions of, of campesino, indigenous, uh, and black communities across uh, the rural countryside in that country and reflects really the history of capitalism itself, which uh, came about through this kind of enclosure movement that is still ongoing. And I wanted to also ask you about uh, the need for internationalism when talking about a right to the city. I mean, these forces of accumulation are also accelerating the population growth in the cities through violence and uh, through terror. Uh, but it is a phenomenon that is going to continue as uh, the climate change uh, crisis continues. Um, you know, by 2050, maybe 60% of the population will be living in an urban setting. So it seems like the future of internationalism will have to pass through the city uh, and particularly the global city if it is to be successful. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the need for internationalism in the right to the city movement. Yeah, I mean, I think about internationalism a lot, um, especially because I've had the opportunity to travel a lot. Um, and just see how um, life is so similar in in cities, like you're saying. Um, and I think in, internationalism is really our only way that we're going to be able to defeat capitalism. Um, I think it's the only way that we'll be able to build a new reality. I think um, it's the only way we'll be able to build 21st century socialism. And I think um, that the US movement doesn't usually understand that or understand what internationalism actually looks like in practice. I think that being in like the belly of the beast, so to speak, living in um, the United States empire, um, it's like we see our role as really critical, right? Like taking on the US government, but I don't think we always recognize how that is impossible without the solidarity of comrades and movements across the world, right? Because the US military is the largest military in the world, larger than pretty much all militaries put together. And um, its reach is just, it's everywhere, you know? And so, um, and it touches so many people's lives, the power of the American empire. So I think um, without understanding that, like I've been, I've been on like international solidarity trips with other American folks. Um, I went to one in Brazil and it uh, was really disappointing to me the way that American activists and organizers were approaching the organizing that an activism that was happening there in Brazil um, and expecting it to be just like 
how we do things here and if, and assuming that the way we do things here is the best way to do them you know um so i think that american exceptionalism has pervaded even our leftist movements and that's something that we have to combat we have to understand that even though as oppressed people within the empire within the united states borders uh we still have a responsibility to um be in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and siblings who are living in the global South and who are um, feeling the impacts of US empire and global capitalism much more acutely usually than we are. Um, and that we have a level of privilege, you know, carrying a US passport. So I think um, if we're not, and, and the other thing is that like, there are things that are possible to do outside of the United States um, that we couldn't imagine doing here. So, for example, I went to um, Brazil on a second trip to study with the um, with the MST, the Landless People's Movement, and um, you know I was really interested being like a, 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 a housing and land organizer, um, seeing how they would occupy land and like turn them into settlements and start producing on the land and free the land and like put it into the hands of the people, you know, and they had like, yeah, so, and then I'm just thinking about how do we do something like that here? And it just spurred so many ideas for me um, around like what it would take for us to like get to reclaim the land, right? To free the land here in the United States. Um, and it requires much more like militant action. It requires much more discipline than I think we have and unity, you know, across the left, um, which is a huge challenge right now in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a good segue into the next topic that I wanted to get into, which is popular education. Right, both the MST that you that you mentioned in Brazil, as well as the CMLK Center in Cuba, um, they both implement these strategies. More than a strategy, it's like a political philosophy around what it might require in terms of pedagogy or developing a pedagogy that is transformative and that is like humanizing. Um, and there's a quote I wanted to to read. It's in Spanish, but I maybe I can read it. But this is from a. a, a an Argentine collective, Pañuelos en, Re en Rebeldía. Dice, ¿cuánto más fácil sería lograr la ansiada unidad con procesos que rescaten el cuerpo, el abrazo, el jugarnos juntos, dejando por un rato las palabras de lado? Well, I don't know if I get, Maybe I'll translate that. <laughs> Or maybe I'll just leave it that. People can Google it. But um, I want to share that with you. And I wanted to get your thoughts there on popular education the role that it can play, especially in U.S. movements, because I totally agree with you in terms of your analysis and the need to really find ourselves again, like in our humanity, right? Like it, there's been this level of professionalization uh, that is almost antithetical to anything that I've seen in, in South American movements or Latin American movements in general. And the idea of, yeah, taking over land, <laughs> like an estate and just starting to grow our coffee and like commercializing it just without asking permission just saying this is our land like this is ours now and i i was just in colombia with comunidades sin tierra that did exactly that and i was accompanying them 
obviously facing extreme repression, like levels of violence that I think for us would be unimaginable to most organizers. I mean, to, to face uh, literal assassination, imprisonment, disappearances, and still doing it anyway. Like building that level of like political understanding, sense of communal power, because every time I'm in those spaces, the one thing that I feel is power. I feel like these people have awakened their sense of power and that they are a historical agent that can influence history. They're not just spectators waiting for, you know, some politician to like transform in order the right policy to be passed by the Senate. Like they're not waiting for that. They're building as we go. And I would love to hear your thoughts on on that. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Woo. Yeah, what a read. <laughs> what a read, Evan. Um so yes. So popular education. Um, I first fell in love with popular education when I started working at Causa Justa because it was a methodology that we used um, with our members. Um, and most of our members were from uh, Central or South America. And so um, they already have this like understanding of learning that I feel like in the United States we do not value. Um, so the like the methodology around, you know, like the whole idea of Freire's of like, you're not you're not a just a teacher, you're not just a student, you're both, right? At the same time, because we all have something to contribute. We all have something to teach and we all have something to learn always. And that is always true. And so that is part that that breaks down the hierarchy of education and of knowledge, right? Because traditionally in the United States, we definitely ascribe to the banking methodology of education where students go to school and listen to an authority, teach them knowledge that has been deemed important by whoever the authorities, which are usually cis, het, white men in power with money. And, uh, and so your worth becomes dependent on how much of that knowledge you retain or em embody or internalize, right? Um, and your and your experience usually, especially if you are black or indigenous, your reality is you're like you're you're being gaslit constantly, right? Um, like you're erased, you're, you don't see yourself, you don't see your experience. And so you don't think that you have anything to offer or contribute, right? Um, you internalize those messages. And so I think we have a lot of folks who don't see the power that they actually have because of how they've been socialized under this like hierarchical system of that is related to, um, that is inextricable from your class position and your uh, and your race and your ethnicity and your family background. So popular education allows people to actually see themselves as, like you're saying, um, a historic force, right? Um, and, and that they can actually 
they can actually contribute to a society um, that values them and that values their humanity. Um, and so I think popular education has really helped, like for me, understand and unlearn like the the assumptions that I grew up believing, like, oh, if I go to college and I get a degree, then everything in my life is going to work out <laughs> or like I, you know, working at McDonald's isn't a respectable job or, you know, just like the things that we're taught um, so that we can ascribe to capitalist logic. Um, so, yeah, and I think in in the US, it's it's hard to get away from the banking method, even in our movements, right? It's hard. I, I feel like the role of the facilitator a lot of times looks like the role of the teacher. And so popular education tries to flip that on its head, right? And so make things more participatory, make things more culturally relevant. Uh, right now at Right to the City, we are exploring how to integrate collective care and cultural organizing into our spaces with our members where we're organizing with them. Um, because we know that, especially in a pandemic, there's a level of care that people are not getting from the government or from, you know, um, their, their neighborhood support systems, um, even because we're so alienated and isolated from each other. Um, and so how do we bring in like, you know, um, somatic grounding and practice? How do we like allow people to fully be present in everything that is going on with for them with their emotions and their sensations and, you know, their needs and their wants? And then how do we make the space culturally relevant so that it actually enhances the learning that's happening, right? Like, how do we use art and song and food and all of these things um, to lift up folks who don't see themselves in the media, who don't see themselves in positions of power? Um, and then how do we actually integrate all of those elements so that the spaces that we're creating can be a reflection of the world that we want to build? And not to get like too like prefigurative into those politics, right? But like you do have to be able to imagine and start to practice the world that you want to build while we're grappling with the system that has us, you know, um, oppressed and, you know, and stuck in so many ways. So I think popular education is a huge tool for that because it really draws those things out of people and allows for greater connection. And when we're able to connect with each other, we're able to express more aspects of our humanity. Um, and usually that means it's like in opposition to the values that, um, that capitalism imposes on us, right? Um, and so that's why I think there is often backlash and, um, you know, fear of those kinds of transformative spaces. And yeah, I think U.S. organizers are <laughs> like soft <laughs> to put, like, I feel like this is another reason why internationalism is so important because, I mean, when I was at the MST, <laughs> we, there was literally a, um, a cops who came to the school. We were at the Escuela Nacional Flores San Fernandez and 
they came to the school looking for some MST activists who like were responsible in establishing an encampment on some private property or whatever. And they got super violent with the people who were there. Like they broke someone's arm. They fired a shot. And, and, and all of the, all of the uh, folks from the States were just like, what <laughs> what is going on you know freaking out and like our our comrades back here hearing about it and you know we were fine we were fine but um that kind of violence you know really hasn't been seen since you know the black panther party i feel like is a lot of or, or move you know so i feel like there's a lot of um yeah just fear and i think also um like some level of liberalism i suppose of like really understanding our conditions and what we're up against and what it's going to take um to get free yeah i mean yeah there's a lot there <laughs> maybe i'll end just to, to come to a close i don't want to take too much time but i wanted to ask you about your trip to to cuba i mean what i draw from one of the roles or one of the, the ways in which popular education can really benefit movements in the United States is by expanding people's imagination or, or retaking the imagination that has been taken from us. You know, we've been kind of put in these artificial constructs of like what we think is possible. And so often we think about like border imperialism as like a physical space, but then there's like those borders that live in our mind. Uh, and it seems so difficult for folks, especially in the United States, to, to cross those borders into something different and really see themselves reflected in those experiences. Not like, oh, that's happening there. Or, you know, that's not mine, but it's like, it's ours. Like it really is, and it can be. Um, and so much of uh, the role of like Solidarity Collective in these, in these uh popular education uh delegations is to try and like like force open that 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 space in the mind and soul uh where new things can can really sprout from so i wanted to hear just a little bit about your experience in cuba and what you drew from that like in your work as an organizer in your work as uh in the right to the city alliance like what did you see there that was like damn like we really need to start doing this or just in what way did your imagination expand? Yeah. So the, the delegation that I went on to Cuba, oh man, it was life changing. Um, it was focused on black socialist strategies around holistic healing and health. And so we talked to a lot of um, healers and uh, doctors. And I think one of the things that stood out to me the most where I was like, wow, was, you know, Cuba's healthcare system, obviously, because you can just go to the doctor for whatever for free. <laughs> and it's just mind blowing coming from the United States where you have to pay for literally everything um, just to walk in the damn door. So it blew my mind that every neighborhood had a neighborhood doctor who took care of their patients from cradle to the grave, you know, like knowing who the families were, knowing what was going on with the family, like seeing kids grow up, like just, just, yeah, like really having that human connection 
because it wasn't a transactional relationship like it is here in the United States. It was actually about maintaining the community's health, you know? Um, and so those, yeah, that just blew my mind. So thinking about, so it had me thinking about like neighborhood connections and neighborhood hubs. One of the things that we're doing at Right to the City is we're trying to develop these hubs, these regional hubs across the country where organizations actually have like a regional center uh, where they align and strategize about how to move housing rights and, and, and land rights um, in their region. And the dream is that those hubs would basically be like a federation of, of community and tenant unions, right? And that in those hubs, you would have access to legal support or to um, like collective care access, like to acupuncturists and therapists and um, access to language justice, meaning you'd have a network of interpreters and translators. And, um, and then, yeah, just like all of like different projects you could collaborate on um like community land trusts or like cooperatives um so that was just like wow okay like this sparked this idea of how that could actually happen and it has to happen from the like we we call it translocal so it's a it's a strategy that goes from the local to the regional to the national, where it's informed by the folks who are most directly impacted, right? And so um, those neighborhood, like like those regional hubs would need to be made up of like neighborhood hubs, right? Um, where people are coming together and getting access to like material things that they need and also um, connecting with people and like, experiencing popular education, experiencing organizing power, experiencing just like um, the, the support uh, that a person needs to like actually thrive in life, you know? Um, so yeah, those, and then, yeah, there was just so much about Kuwa. I mean, um, the reality of what what is possible when nobody is homeless, when nobody is, you know, lacking, when nobody's hungry, when no one is unable to access healthcare, um, when the, the role of the government is to make sure that your basic needs are met. And so what else becomes possible? Like the, the way that folks connect to each other, the art that they make, the food they create, um, just the, like the general spirit of feeling powerful and feeling worthy, you know, um, it, it is transformative and I can, yeah, I encourage everybody to learn from Cuba's example and learn the history and learn like what it took, right. To get there. Um, because it was a lot of struggle and sacrifice and loss and defeat before there was actual, you know, a victory and able to an ability to um, to create that world, like that reality for their society. Right. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's some of what I took <laughs> from Kula.
And how can people support you in the work that you're doing at Right to the City Alliance? Yeah, well, folks should definitely like follow us and um, check out the work that we're doing. Um, it's uh, at our city, uh, I believe, on Instagram and Twitter and uh, right to the city on Facebook and right to the city.org is our website. And I think if there are member organizations in the area where folks live, if there is a member, a local right to the city members support that organization. You can donate directly to those organizations. You can volunteer, um, but supporting the local housing rights organizations is the best way um, to grow this movement that we're trying to, to do because it's gonna take the strength of local organizations to really pull this off. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for being on, on the show on Solidarity Radio. My pleasure, thank you. That is all for this week's show. I would like to thank Paige Coombe once more for taking the time to speak with me. Please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Solidarity Collective and visit Right to the City Alliance to learn more about their work. Until next time.